Like you, uh, I've been forced to kind of read the times uh, this past year, to listen to what the Spirit may be saying during a pandemic, during social unrest, political turmoil, and most of us here have experienced what others have experienced, and I talk to other pastors, and it's definitely not unique. Lost friendships, more tension, family disunity, church division, arguments about masking, vaccines, and that just is to name a few. And I believe these times are pertinent to Palm Sunday. I'll draw some parallels in a minute as to what this means in terms of Palm Sunday. But I want us to uh, get straight to our challenge as a church. They say when you take speech or preaching class to make your point clear. Uh, can't always claim that I do that, but I'll, I'll tell you up front and then we'll move on with the, the, the meat of it. All right, we don't get the option to go and pout because somebody doesn't agree with us as a church. We don't get the option of arguing with our brothers and sisters to the point of division. And we don't get the option of seeking a church where everyone agrees with us on vaccines and race and politics. That is not an option for us as the people of God. It is not that we aren't allowed positions, and it's not that we aren't allowed to have discussions, but those positions are subservient to the most important purpose and a higher calling. Listen to the wisdom of God, and tell me if this is what you've experienced this past year. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I ask you, do you think that Christians in general have modeled this behavior and attitude when talking about politics or when addressing COVID-19 or its related topics? Do you feel united, of the same mind, peaceful, full of love for one another, building up one another? See, this doesn't just call us to not fight. God is calling us to unity, love, one mind, being in full accord. Now, I hope some of you have experienced that. I've experienced some of that. Unity. 
And my firm belief in the biblical record, I think, clearly shows such unity cannot be found by agreeing on a man-made mindset or political philosophy. That is not the basis. Now, sometimes a mindset can intersect, even a political philosophy can intersect with biblical truth. For instance, there are those who call themselves progressives or Democrats or liberals, as some might say, that deal with social justice, truths about feeding the poor, being hospitable to outsiders, racial concerns, all have clear biblical precedent. I'm not touting CRT or BLM. I'm merely talking about the biblical topics. Then there are conservatives or what we normally see as Republicans that intersect with biblical wisdom when addressing opposition to abortion or upholding sexual morality. So sometimes the Bible intersects with some of these groups. Many times they don't. There are things to criticize on both sides. But what we see happening is a canceling out of even other believers because, you know, they might agree with one section that the Bible agrees to, but, oh, no, can't be a part of that group. You know, just because social justice is spoken about by the progressive mindset we don't throw it out. Our allegiance is to Christ and God's wisdom. You know, I don't cease putting on my pants and tying my shoes because progressive people do that. Thank you. I hope you have your pants on and your shoes are tied, I hope. A political mindset is about power and control. A biblical mindset has kingdom rules, not of this earth. A political mindset does not have as its core a relationship or allegiance to Christ. That's the kingdom of God. We cannot build God's kingdom without the king and his truth. It's one of the reasons I think the cancel culture is gaining steam because without objective truth, one is merely left with agreement to our opinion or our group to feel a rightness about something, a kind of self-righteousness, superiority supersedes what is really right. And now that God is out of the picture and there's no basis for moral truth, the cancel culture is used for political power to bully the opposition instead of appeals to a greater principle. Now, all of us have a political philosophy, nothing wrong with that, or a mindset, and an opinion as it relates to policy, social issues, pandemic. Okay, all free to have those. But these philosophies are not a delivery system for the unity that the Bible talks about. Yesterday, I saw an ad while watching one of the NCAA games. It was about unity in our nation after the pandemic. You know, feel good, music, you know, everybody with their mask on, getting shots, unified country. That was the, and then the climax was, and unity around college sports. Really? 
Basketball can now transform human hearts and cause people to love one another. Amazing. I don't think so. Talk about clutching at straws. We all want unity, but the culture is grossly short on delivering it. And many churches are struggling and Christians within the church struggling with this fractured state of our community on, on multiple grounds. And then a, a patchwork of agreement on politics or social issues is not the answer. So why do we keep pounding the same drum? I have to constantly repeat it. It's not that you can't take a position, it's in putting that position above the preeminence of Christ. And Christ is our unity, and Christ is our contentment. Having a position is not the issue. We just can't ask of those positions what only Christ can deliver. The truth is this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one political party, and father of all. Well, I went, that was not there, I'm sorry. Who is over all and through all and in all. There can be no doubt about the source of our unity. Right? I mean, listen, I love the Cardinals. You all know that, right? But I don't hate the Royals. Right? I mean, I love the Cardinals. I love Jim's Steakhouse. I love their prime rib, Okay? Love is a relative term. I sometimes look forward to going, you can say even passionate about going with my wife and having a good steak and a sweet potato and enjoying the fellowship. All right, those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that, but is that more important than Christ? No. So I'm not saying we can't get passionate about something. I'm not saying you can't take the position, but we realize the gravity of those things doesn't reach the level of Christ, and nothing does. When we demand agreement on something else to tether our fellowship other than Christ, we have fashioned an idol. Do you have an idol today? You have something you've demanded of others to agree with you on? Instead of Christ, in order to have fellowship? Then that's an idol. You may even get upset. But you know what? That's not what my fellowship is based on. Right? God's wisdom provides a better way for all of us to respond to the tension. I read this passage in Ephesians. You read through the New Testament. I think, I think there's, there's something about listening more and humbling ourselves to understand one another instead of assuming 
that we know what the other person thinks and feels. We, we hear them out. We ask good questions to understand. Instead of assuming we know all the answers, we, we practice Christ as our unity then by, by choosing him and him alone as that which tethers us, as our hope. Instead of assisting on an agreement of a list of political and social issues. Again, idols are those things that replace the preeminence of Christ. In the middle of a global pandemic, a contentious election, social unrest, the American Bible Society, with assistance of Harvard's, of all people, University Human Flourishing Program, found a strong correlation of what gives hope, and guess what? What? the delivery system was. You'll never guess it, what they said. Scripture reading. 75% recorded feeling more, more hopeful when reading the Bible three or four times a week, along with a community of a small group or a church. Tyler Vanderweel, director of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, said the churches, and I quote, have an important and profound role in contributing to people's well-being in general, and especially so during this time. You're not feeling much hope? How much are you into the Word? You're not feeling much hope? How much are you humbling yourself with God's people entering into relationship? See, I think instead of the church cowering, instead of us getting angry at one another, instead of the church desperately being infatuated with relevance, I think we can have confidence that our mission has not changed now than what it was in 2019 and 2018. We are kingdom citizens of the gospel to give hope to individuals who are tired of what the culture is doing that does not deliver on its promises. And trying to take a more optimistic view of this, you know, you look across the landscape, see all these people you disagree with. You don't agree with them on masks. You don't agree with them on vaccines. You don't agree with them on social issues. You don't agree with them on race, blah, blah, blah. Just, just go down the line, right? And you think, man, there can't be any unity. Eh, just hold your horses for a second. But when you look at the core of what's taking place and people, you know, just bickering, talking behind people's back with all this, I think the more hopeful view of this is that people are looking for hope. And they're discouraged. They're discouraged that their guy didn't get in, or maybe their guy did get in, and he's not delivering on his promises. At the deepest level, people are looking for hope. That's something all of us can relate to, no matter where you stand or what circle you're in. When the social engineering programs fail, we're still looking for hope. When our party's in power or not in power, we're still looking for hope. When you get canceled out or you cancel others, there's still a hope for truth and justice that is certain, that is true, that is right. Who can deliver on this hope? For that, I think you need somebody who transcends history and changes the human heart. You'll need God. But there's, here's the question. Is God involved enough in our world to make a difference? How can I know that God can deliver on this promise to be involved in our world? To be there 
operating in his sovereignty and is in control of events and that we can have confidence in his leadership and his presence and his promises. If you're needing an answer to that, I want to tell you that Palm Sunday is the perfect answer to this question. One is because they had social unrest at the same time. Just like we have social unrest now. Christ was the answer then, he's the answer now. When Christ is our source of contentment and unity, there's going to be celebration. When anything supplants Christ, be it political power, cultural mindset, the contentment and the unity go out the window. The Sunday before the crucifixion of Christ is called Palm Sunday. We call it that because on that day, they celebrated Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt as the crowds waved palm branches, laid him down along with clothing in this rapturous procession. It's chilling because many of those folks who were calling Hosanna would soon after call for his death and crucifixion. Humans indeed are fickle about their messiahs. It's God calling now. You need to listen. <laughs> Most of the crowd miss the meaning of the event because they projected on what they wanted out of the Messiah that did not meet reality, did not meet God's promises. They wanted a king now who would rule, who would defeat Rome, who would give Israel freedom from their political and social captors. God wasn't quite ready for that. Their political hopes were whipped up into a frenzy that day to be dashed by the religious elite of Jerusalem made, who made a deal with the devil, plotted his murder. Even one of the disciples exhibited the idea of control, unwilling to relent to Jesus' plan to lay himself down as a sacrifice. They didn't even like the idea of him wanting to wash their feet, but when they came to get Jesus on that day in the garden, Peter lops off the ear of a guard. See, it's, it's aggression and power that's going to get us what we need that was not God's way. There's always a struggle with Christians today who lean into power and aggression. And then others who serve and sacrifice as modeled by their master. It was a problem then, it's a problem now. April 6th, 32 A.D., has been called the triumphal entry. From an earthly perspective, it would appear Rome and the Pharisees would gain the triumph as they saw to it that Christ was tortured and crucified. Was this somehow a misstep of God? Was this somehow Jesus who got his wires crossed? I would submit to you that there's no device of Satan or those who do his bidding that can deter God from his blueprint. 
Jesus could not stop the plan. The Pharisees did not keep Christ in the grave. God was, I want to submit to you, the only one triumphant on April 6th, 32 AD. And the reason I'm saying that is because there was a prophecy that went to that exact day over 400 years before that day. One of the ways God communicates to us is in prophecy. It's merely God letting us know that he knows what's going to happen. It's merely God letting us know that he's in control. It's God letting us know that we can trust him with the future. Yes, trust him right now in the midst of the social unrest, in the midst of the political upheaval, in the midst when you think that your guy is in power, your guy isn't in power, doesn't matter, God is still in control. And when we remember his words, they are like anchors for our soul. In the whirlwind of Palm Sunday, the arrest of Jesus and the eventual crucifixion, the disciples forgot what he had said, the word of God. They forgot the prophecies. And many failed to trust in his care and his presence. And it's our problem today. We can't go the way of Peter, angrily trying to, you know, maneuver things so that we can get what we want in the moment. With careful reflection after the flat, uh, fact, we read how they were finally connecting the dots, the disciples. We read in John 12, 16, referring to a prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9, that the king of Israel would arrive in Jerusalem on a donkey. It says this, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done. So I'm merely letting you know, oh, the light comes on. Yeah, that prophecy. Or there's some other ones, doozies. And faith and trust in God is actually available to us, even when we don't know how the circumstances are going to turn out. So God is wanting us to express faith now in the midst of all this instead of anger, instead of, instead of division, and have one mind loving one another. The Jews were no different than us in this regard. They wondered if God was in control. So let's go back centuries before at Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. And we read of a prophecy that was given. Daniel is given this by an angel, Gabriel. After he prays to God about the sins of Israel, it says in verses 20 through 27, Seventy weeks are, um, excuse me, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was 
speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I love that. I'm going to give you this prophecy. You know why? Because you're greatly loved. I've got a word for you. And I think if God could say something to us today, he'd say, you're greatly loved. I've got this. I want you to know that I've got this under control. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out to the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolation until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. There is so much detail to this that the difficulty is in knowing what to communicate, what not to communicate. I want to stay on the main point, but I want to give a much enough detail to where you can kind of understand. So I don't, I don't want to lose you in this. Uh, the prophecy starts in Daniel 9.25 with the word to rebuild Jerusalem. So when was that? Well, you have to go to Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. When, remember when Nehemiah proposed to King um, Artaxerxes about having the uh, walls rebuilt, Jerusalem rebuilt. And it says there, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now that's critical. The Encyclopedia Britannica says the date of that king's reign, he took the throne, uh, the, the throne in 465 B.C. The 20th year of his reign would be 445 B.C. Now, the month is given as Nisan, which is obviously, you're talking about the Jewish calendar here. So you've got to hold on to that because that's 360 days a year. So that's what you use to calculate, all right? And according to Jewish custom, if no day is given, they just give a month, you start the calculation with the first day of the month. So you'll have to trust me with this. You can look it up. But if you convert the exact days of the Jewish calendar for that day in Nisan, uh, the start of this prophecy, if it's in our calendar, is March 14th, 445 B.C. Okay? Now, 
we notice a couple other things. And I, again, I don't want to lose you on this, but um, this is to your people in verse 24, speaking of the Jews, the nation of Israel, your holy city about Jerusalem. It's about an anointed prince, meaning Jesus, and then another prince who's to come. Most think that's a Roman ruler. But it says that it's the people of the ruler in Rome who destroyed the temple, which is exactly what took place in 70 AD. Um, Notice in verses 25 and 26 of Daniel that after the first seven weeks and then after the next 62 weeks, that is 69 weeks, the, the Messiah will be cut off and the city of Jerusalem and the temple sanctuary will be destroyed. Now, it intimates a gap here between the 69th and the 70th week in our passage. And that 70th week is when we see a fulfillment of Israel's blessings that are listed out in the passage, six different blessings, um, where it says that you shall finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring an everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. All right? Seven weeks, it says, and then 62 weeks make up the first 69. That's the crux of what we want to focus on. Now, when it says week, it just means seven, okay? The Hebrew word Shaboah simply means seven. Now, if it meant days, it would have a qualifier that this meant days. Most Jews would take that seven to mean years, and even in Genesis uh, 29, 27, the word week referred to seven years. Years. So again, he's saying 77s if you're looking at the total prophecy. But again, we're looking at the 69 sevens. That's what we're trying to compute here, okay? Again, stay with me, all right? Using the Jewish calendar of 30 days in a month, 360 days a year, let's try this computation, all right? What we have is if you add... Um, after you add Daniel 9.26, it says 62 weeks to the first sevens, and using the Jewish calendar, all right, that this counts as years, the sevens, you have 69 times seven times 360, that's the Jewish calendar days, all right? That makes 173,880 days. That date from when it started is... April 6th, 32 AD, the exact day of Palm Sunday when Jesus came to Jerusalem. According to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9.25, this day marks the Messiah's manifestation as prince. It's the exact day that Jesus Christ rode through Jerusalem on a donkey as recorded in Luke 19, verses 28 and 44. This event was prophesied centuries before it happened. And God let Israel know this prophecy so they would trust him in the midst of Roman rule and calamity. That's what they were experiencing. Anybody feel like calamity? Anybody feel like they're in the wrong place? We have the benefit of hindsight of 300 
fulfilled prophecies of Christ to affirm that Christ can be trusted when he came the first time. This is just one of the biggest. My friends, if God accomplished a plan for his son in the midst of opposition from the most powerful nation on the earth at the time, in the midst of opposition from Satan himself, in the midst of betrayal from those closest to him, denial from those closest to him, in the midst of opposition from the religious elite, don't you think God cares enough for us, is powerful enough to fulfill his purpose today just like he did then? Absolutely. What Palm Sunday shows us is that God is right on schedule. Do not allow a season of hardship to cloud a whole history of God's faithfulness. Do not allow the plethora of Scripture to steal your unity and your contentment that are found in Christ. Jesus is our unity and no other. Jesus is our hope and no other. Don't try to find it in something else. That's worth celebrating. That's why we can come together as a church and be joyful, not by putting our head in the sand, but opening our eyes up to what God has been doing all along. And we can say, thank you, and worship him, and serve him. And as a church, let me tell you, our MO is not in gathering our political power to twist the arms of those in authority today. Our power is the same power that Jesus demonstrated to his disciples. Take a towel and a basin and serve one another and serve your community. Let's pray.